once again you have a packet with lots of maps in it. So you want to make, make you have some space <clears throat> beside you like you did last week. I'm going to begin this evening with a pair oration <clears throat> in which we step back for the wide angle view of this section panoramic perspective before we focus down more narrowly on the close-up snapshots. These chapters, that is Jeremiah 46 through 51, contain the oracles of the life and death of nations. Tonight, Ammon through Babylon, chapters 49 through 51, they join Egypt through Moab, chapter 46 through 48, in a parade, a parade of divine sovereignty, a parade of divine judgment. Cascading, rippling, sovereign, divine instrumentality, cascading, rippling, Sovereign, divine penalty. The Lord God of hosts, who uses the nations for his purposes, even his purposes against his covenant people. The Lord God of hosts will concomitantly use nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom in wars and rumors of wars until his kingdom comes. His kingdom comes inaugurally via incarnation, and his kingdom comes consummately via parousia. If Babylon is Yahweh Sabaoth's instrument against Judah, then Persia is his instrument against Babylon. The climax of these oracles of judgment focuses upon the nation through whom much of the judgment came on the other nations as listed. Babylon against Egypt. Babylon against Philistia. Babylon against Moab, Ammon, Edom, Damascus, Kedar, Hatzor. But in chapters 50 and 51, Babylon is fated, Babylon is slated to receive blood for blood. Humiliation for humiliation. Destruction for destruction. The final judgment oracle of Jeremiah is closed against Babylon while open to the future. Open to the future of Babylon's demise, a demise beyond the 70 years captivity of Judah, a demise which will bring no restoration of the Chaldean hegemony, even as remnant Judah wanders back to Jerusalem to open the next act in her sacred story. 
her continuing story, while the story of mighty Babylon is forgotten under mounds of dust and rubble, heaps of crumbled stone and clay, a haunt of jackals, carrion eaters, and desolation, uninhabited desolation. The once upon a time queen city of Mesopotamia, adorned by the lush banks of the Euphrates River, is displaced by sand and dust and ash and wind and desert wilderness. To borrow from Daniel's gold-crowned towering image, the head of gold has been toppled, lopped off, as lifeless as the empire it ever so briefly dominated, a mere 73 years, not even a century in the international spotlight. Babylon's grass withers, her flower fades, and her place is known no more. Shall we intone a requiem for Babylon? Shall we gather orchestra and chorus to sing her obituary? It shall be a dirge, a dirge of whispers and hisses, an anti-requiem of roaring growls, lion-like, and screaming screes, eagle-like, an anti-chorus of wails and shrieks, groans and gasps, of approaching death, a requiem for the imperial city which becomes the emblematic whore of apocalyptic eschatology. No, the music of this funeral parade plays on, on into the next tyranny which materializes out of the rubble of the past materializes to tyrannize again with the chorus, the militant chorus of domination, subjugation, degradation, humiliation, prostration, and utter dehumanization. For totalitarian tyranny like that of Babylon and all other imperialistic devils Totalitarian tyranny recapitulates itself, reimages itself, recreates itself in the image of that diabolic tyranny which originally set man against his maker. And ever in its onward march through history, tyranny grasps the power to destroy to destroy liberty, to destroy personhood, to destroy life, even fetal life, to destroy truth, to destroy God himself, because this tyrannical totalitarianism is determined to rule. It is determined to control. It is determined to bend all all to its own intolerant will and agenda. 
this demonic obsession with power. Power. More power. Is determined to crush all opposition. All forces opposed to it. All forces dedicated to independence from it. This demonic obsession with power is determined to crush all other options to itself, to crush them for the sake of elevating itself to supreme power over all of human life and all human life choices. This is the spirit of Babylon, Babylon, that great whore of all that is opposed to the Lord God of hosts. It is the spirit of every imperial leader since 539 B.C. And like the poor, it is ever with us, morphing itself into modern whores of political thuggery, cultural brutality, and even religious idolatry. It bears within its bosom an eschatology of evil, heaving, breathing immorality, injustice, Arrogance, pride, foolishness, narcissism, demagoguery, egocentric messianism, deceit, treachery, crass, falsehood, even under oath, bald-faced lies, even under oath, an agenda of free passes, an agenda of free passes for special political friends, special social friends, special cultural friends, special military friends. Free passes for them while harassing, oppressing, and silencing others who oppose the narrative spin of the legion of sycophants of that leading cultural elite, the celebrity types whose own behavior is lawless, defiant, lewd, and shameful. But as the days of Babylon came to an end, this too shall pass. This eschatology of evil, this modern manifestation of the whore of Babylon, this too will be used by the eschatological Lord of hosts as he casts the snares of their own making over them trapping them in the pits, the hellish pits that they have dug for themselves. Oppress others and cover it up. Lord God, Sabaoth will uncover their injustice, their perfidious treachery. He will cast them into the pit they have dug for others. He will use their wiles against them, exploiting their arrogance, their insouciance, their high and mighty, too carefully controlled to fail narrative, and he will explode it in their faces for the tissue of lies that wraps them up in its own devious coils. And that great sovereign Lord will turn back upon their own heads those schemes by which they ensnared and dominated their opposition. He will sovereignly use the very forces which he had provided cover for their malfeasance by at last unveiling the forces of malfeasance through the bellowing roar of an awakened lion on the prowl 
and the piercing eye and swooping descent of a rapacious eagle circling, circling, ever circling downward upon the hapless prey. All this characterization of the tyrannical is found here in the imagery of Jeremiah 46 to 51. Here we find the idolatry of self-pride. Here we find the celebrity status of the elite. Here we find a posturing photo-op hubris, which ever manipulates itself to the center of the spotlight, to the center of the image, to the center of the portrait, to the center of the moment. Here we find a narcissistic messianism which makes the nation an object of disdain, an object of contempt, a nation despised, and a nation which is an object of attack. For as there is no self-respect in the ruler, only egocentrism, so there is no respect for the state, only contempt, murderous contempt for the state. Here we find foolishness masquerading as alleged intellectual brilliance, a foolishness which presumes upon its vaunted self-image, projecting peace, peace, when there is no peace. And where presumption prevails, one disaster after another assails. A staccato parade of calamity after calamity, reducing people to shame, to hopelessness, to dependency, which is bankrupt. And here we find the original sin the pursuit of pleasure endorsed by the elites, the pursuit of immorality promoted by the moguls of the culture, the endless manipulation and application of power such that the very body politic is seized by a fevered madness, frothing, bubbling, foaming madness, the power of virtual insanity in personalities driven by lust, the lust for yet more and more power. The eschatology of totalitarianism, all of which is detailed in the pages of these chapters of Jeremiah's oracles against the ancient Near Eastern nations and that totalitarian eschatology as manifesting itself in the 7th and 6th century B.C. The life and death of the nations. Totalitarian nations centuries before Christ. Nations by which the Lord God of hosts reveals the genotype the genotype of totalitarian nations in every age of his providential history, reveals it in order to humiliate it, reveals it in order to display the surpassing glory of the eschatological kingdom of heaven, reveals it to drive us to the one ruler and governor of our life, 
reveals it to drive us to the one governor and ruler of our person. Reveals it to drive us to the ruler who has set us free, free from every diabolic tyranny, our precious, our gracious God and King Jesus Christ, the ever-living, ever-ruling Son of the living God. To him be praise forever and ever. God blessed over all. Amen. Even so, Lord Jesus, as with the tyrannical nations of Jeremiah 46 to 51, and the chief tyrannical whore amongst them, so too with the nations of this world, as they have sowed, even so shall they also reap. Sick semper tyrannis. Now, having begun with the pair oration, we continue with the narration, the details of Jeremiah 49 to 51. If you take out your handout and beginning on the first page, also look through your maps and pull out map number 104, which should be the first map in the packet. We locate the nation of Ammon, which is detailed here in verses 1 to 6 of chapter 49. And what is the origin of the nation of Ammon? Loretta, that's Lot and his daughters, the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters after the escape from Sodom and Gomorrah, which is down at the south end of the Dead Sea on your map. You see the city of Zoar. It's probably where Sodom and Gomorrah was located. <coughs> and um, the, <coughs> this generated in Genesis 19, two sons, Ammon and Moab. Now, this uh, term, Melcom or Malcom in verse 1, is referring to what? Or whom? Any of you have an annotated Bible that gives you a hint there? It is a God. It is a God, yes. And what name do you know that God by? Not not Baal. Robert Moloch. Yes, Moloch. Yeah, so this is another uh, variation on the national deity of the Ammonites. And I've put 1 Kings 11, 5, and 7 uh, in the margin there so that you can take a look at a couple of passages in the book of Kings where he's mentioned. Now, the Ammonites were a bit of a thorn in the flesh to the children of Israel at a couple of occasions in their history. I've mentioned Jephthah there and the famous story of Jephthah's vow that was in the context of his battle and defeat of the Ammonites. And then there's Nahash and his attack upon King Saul, 
But most recently, in our own study, we've noted King Bayless, who is king of Ammon, and his part in the plot to assassinate the governor of Judah, Gedaliah. Now, in this first verse, it indicates that the Ammonites have taken possession of Gad, and although Gad is not shown on map number 104, if you take the next map in your packet, map number 68, you can actually see the territory of Gad uh, near to Ammon and folded around the inheritance of the tribe of Judah. So Gad is a Transjordanian tribe on the east bank. And the reference to when the Ammonites took possession of Gad is unknown for certain, though it may have followed the invasion of Tiglath-Pileser III in 734 B.C., an invasion in which he also penetrated the northern kingdom of Israel and also destroyed Damascus in the so-called Syro-Ephraimite War. Uh, Having uh, uh, invaded Israel, that allowed the Ammonites the freedom to attack uh, the eastern Transjordanian tribal regions, namely Gad. So it's possible that this reference here is reflecting upon uh, that event. Now, verse 2 mentions Rabbah, sometimes mentioned in the Old Testament as Rabbah's Ammon. It is Ammon today. And what can you tell me about Ammon today? Art, let's start with you. What can you tell me about Ammon today? Capital of Jordan. It's the capital, the Hashemite kingdom of the Jordan, correct. And Rabbath or Amman or Rabbath Amman is one of the oldest cities which has had a continuous occupation uh, in the world. It goes all the way back to the second millennium BC. So it is occasionally in the news, uh, even in our own day and is in the same location, relatively speaking, as it was in biblical times. Now, why the uh, mention of Rabbah here? Once again, possibly because the Ammonites were involved in uh, harassing Judah and Jerusalem when Nebuchadnezzar uh, brought his uh, troops into the picture. There is a a passage in Josephus in which he says that Nebuchadnezzar campaigned in the West, meaning in Assyria and Palestine, about 582 B.C. Now, if you'll keep your finger there in Jeremiah 49 and turn ahead to chapter 52, verse 30, there may be an indirect reference in this passage to what Josephus had in mind. You'll notice that the author there in Jeremiah 52:30 says, "In the 23rd year of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Nebuzaradan came and carried away a certain number of Jewish exiles. So there was another kind of campaign, 23 years, 
uh, into the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Now, what year would that be? When did Nebuchadnezzar begin to be king of Babylon? It is 605. And so if you subtract 23 from 605, what do you get? So here's Josephus' comment about Nebuchadnezzar campaigning in the West, and here is a reference here in Jeremiah 52.30 that may correspond with it. In other words, Josephus says that there was an attack upon the West. He doesn't specify the countries involved, and neither does the writer of Jeremiah 52.30. But he says he came to Jerusalem, so we know that there were some Jews that were involved. But it's conceivable he came by way of the East Bank, or at least he had some incursions into Ammonite territory. So the possible fulfillment there of verse 2 in 582, confirmed indirectly by chapter 52, verse 30. Now in verse 3, there are two cities mentioned, Heshbon and Ai. Uh, On your map you can see Heshbon which is in the north. It's actually north of the Dead Sea on map 68, just a little bit north and to the right. Uh, What about I? Do you know a story about I? No story about I, K. Okay. There was one year Jericho that the Israelites did not take because of sin. They didn't take the city of I. Yes. Okay. So there's one on the what side of the Jordan? West. On the west. And what do we call that? What do we call the east side? Trans Jordan. What do we call the west side? That's the Cisjordan. Okay, so here we do not have a Cisjordan eye. That is, we do not have an eye on the west side of the Jordan. That's the eye that Kay referred to, the campaigns of Joshua to conquer the promised land. So Cisjordan eye is not in view here. Well, then where's Transjordanian eye? Well, it's somewhere over there in the territory of Ammon. (laughs) But... Nobody knows. Uh, consequently, we uh, don't make the mistake of identifying this I. You say it's 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 a <clears throat> it's identified next to Heshbon, so it could be in that region, but uh, no one has uh, located it, and there's no record of it. Uh, some of the ways that we know where these places are is because of explorers or pilgrims that left notes about these locations, even in the early patristic age, particularly Eusebius, the church historian, has a lot of information on the location of some of these places, which is very helpful. But not uh, not this Transjordanian eye, so we don't know exactly where it was. Any questions about Ammon before we move on in verse 7 to Edom? And Loretta, since you're our expert on origins, what's the origin of Edom? (coughs) 
Nancy, do you know where the Edomites come from? How about you, Lisa? Where, are the, where did the Edomites come from? No? Ben? Yes, they are the descendants of Esau in Genesis 36 because the name Edom means red. Yes, and Esau, when he was born, was all red. So the Edomites trace their lineage back to uh, their first father, Esau. What book of the Bible features Edom? If you're thinking about summarizing all the 66 books of the Bible, which one of the 66 is about Edom? What would you say, Robert? Ooh, he says that's a hard one. It really is not a hard one. Looks like Kay's got a smile on her face. Oh, no, she's she's sympathizing with his ooh over there. (laughs) Loretta? Genesis. What's that? Genesis. Genesis? No. It's a whole book about Edom. Ben? Well, I was going to say Exodus. No. Art? Lisa? Kings? No. Nancy? I'll give you a chance. No. Okay. All right. Do you want a chance, Christina? Okay. Obadiah. The prophet Obadiah, the shortest prophetic book in the Old Testament. The book of Obadiah is entirely devoted to Edom. Interesting little book. In fact, a great deal of work being done on Obadiah these days. Very good work because the work is being done on the Hebrew text. And that's uh, uncovering some little gems, not only gems of poetry, but gems of theological insight. All right. Um, Now, on map number 104, you see the city of Teman and you see the location of Edom, which is south of Moab there. It's the south part of the Dead Sea. It goes all the way down to a lot. You see a lot down there at the bottom of the map, which is at the uh, peak at the Gulf of a lot. All right, uh, Teman. Who's a Temanite? Some famous character in the Bible is a Temanite. And amongst those that came to him was Eliphaz the Temanite. One of Job's comforters, Eliphaz, in Job chapter 2. Now, uh, he's a Temanite because he's from Teman. Well, what was the character of Job's counselors or comforters? What, What were they, how were they qualified to come to him? What credentials did they have? They were his friends. They were his friends, friends. okay. What else? What kind of a book is the book of Job? It's in what collection of biblical books? Wisdom. Wisdom. 
So, is Eliphaz associated with wisdom? Well, that's too easy. You just gave it to us, Denison. Yes, of course he is. All right, because Job's comforters are all associated with wisdom, there are men from the East, and in the Bible, those in the East are proverbial for their wisdom. And so Eliphaz is part of this reputation of wise men from the East, and uh, he comes to Job not only because he's a friend, as Kay pointed out, don't want to underestimate that, but because he's a wise friend. And these friends are supposed to have a wisdom of insight in order to encourage Job. And, of course, all they do is beat him up some more. So, in any event, uh, this is why uh, Teman is mentioned here. Edom is associated with a strain of Near Eastern wisdom. Now, in verse 8, you have a, uh, a location called Dedan, which you will not find on your map because it is a caravan oasis in the desert region of northeastern Edom or perhaps breaking over the border into what is ancient Arabia. Now, this uh, location was a commerce center, meaning it was on a caravan route. Lots of activity of cross-traffic going through this location on its way north and south. Uh, south down the Arabian Peninsula uh, to the riches of uh, southeastern Arabia, modern-day Yemen and so on, and north to Damascus and beyond to the Mesopotamian Fertile Crescent, the Tigris and Euphrates Valleys. At any rate, this is an indication of the luxury of Edom, the wealth of the nation, because uh, this location is part of a great commercial caravan center. Now, in verses 9 to 10 uh, of chapter 49, you have uh, phrases or expressions which are actually lifted out of the book of Obadiah. If you have a marginal uh, note Bible, you'll notice that Obadiah 5 and 6 are mentioned there as parallel to uh, these verses. raises the fascinating question about dependence. In other words, was Jeremiah dependent upon Obadiah or was Obadiah dependent upon Jeremiah? It's uh, more likely that Jeremiah is borrowing from Obadiah, but nonetheless, uh, we leave that question uh, to a time when we can go verse by verse through the book of Obadiah. Wouldn't that be fun? All right. (laughs) So we've noticed that Jeremiah is familiar with other prophets. He quotes the prophet Micah, for instance, as an 8th century B.C. prophet. Here he's quoting Obadiah, who may be a contemporary or slightly earlier or slightly later than he is. Nonetheless, it indicates that this oracle against Edom is something that is picked up by other Old Testament prophets, not just Jeremiah. And now we come to verse 10, in which Esau is laid bare and his hiding places are uncovered. Uh, The Lord unveils or uncovers his places of concealment and exposes him, exposes him to humiliation and to uh, destruction. 
This is a possible reference to a campaign by Nabonidus, who was the last king of Babylon. His dates are given there in the mid-6th century. Nabonidus was an interesting character. Um, He ruled Babylon, but not uh, in person. Why? Why, Art, didn't he rule Babylon in person? I can ask you this because you supposedly are hearing sermons on this at this time. So let's see how well your memory is. I can't ask the people from Linwood because it's been too long since they heard those sermons. All right, in Daniel chapter 5, there's the famous feast. Whose feast? Art, whose feast in Daniel 5? Me, me, Tikkun, Parson. Anyone? Belshazzar's feast in chapter 5. Okay. Now, when Belshazzar sees that handwriting on the wall, he asks for somebody to read it. And he says, when they read it, he'll make them third in the kingdom. Did you want to say something, Nancy? Daniel, yes. Daniel chapter 5. He'll make them third in the kingdom. What does he mean to make him third in the kingdom? The father was first in the kingdom. Belshazzar was second. And then he made... Who's, uh, who's the father? Oh. Nebuchadnezzar. Starts with an N. Yes. I wonder if it's in that thing that's right there on the sheet. <coughs> What's his name, Anybody? Nabonidus. Nabonidus. All right, so Nabonidus is the king of Babylon, and he appoints a second-in-command to stay in Babylon, the city, while he retreats to an oasis in the Arabian desert, far western Arabian desert. And therefore, uh, the story about Daniel being elevated to the third in order is accurate, because Nabonidus was number one, Belshazzar was number two, and Daniel would have been number three. Now, it's important to remember that because in the 19th century, the liberal higher critics ridiculed that story because they said, well, he couldn't have been number three because Belshazzar was king. And, of course, they didn't know that Belshazzar really wasn't king. Nabonidus was king. It wasn't until the 1920s that they discovered some uh, material archaeologically that indicated that Nabonidus was, in fact, king in absentia, and Belshazzar was kind of the guy that was keeping things under control in Babylon. Well, uh, all of that to say that Nabonidus, having his uh, throne in the Arabian desert in a uh, city called Tiama, uh, Nabonidus attacked these tribes and regions of the Transjordanian, including the Edomites. And so it's possible that verse 10, talking about the stripping of Esau and the humiliation of the Edomites, is referring to Nabonidus' campaign sometime between 556 and 539 B.C. Now verse 13 mentions the city of Bozrah, and you can see that on your map 104. And you'll notice that it also reappears in verse 22 at the end of this section, dealing with Edom. Bozrah is a very prominent city in Edomite history and perhaps was the capital of the Edomite nation. 
In verses 14 to 16, we once again have passage which is parallel to the opening of the book of Obadiah. Obadiah verses 1 to 4 are duplicated or parallel to Jeremiah 49 verses 14 to 16. Now in verse 19, we come to the Zor. The Zor. What's the Zor? It's that jungle-like thicket which grows along the banks of the Jordan River. Notice the passage, one will come up like a lion from the thickets of the Jordan. Here's this roaring lion which is going to break out against the Edomites. And that lion image will also be used with respect to Babylon. Any questions then about the uh, judgment of God against Edom? Which brings us to verse 23 and the next nation or city on Jeremiah's list, namely Damascus. Damascus is the capital of what today? Syria. Syria, yes. It's in the news almost every day. It's the Syrian capital. And it was the capital of Syria in the Old Testament. Once again, a city with a very, very long history, very much like Rabbah or Amman, goes all the way back to the second millennium B.C., uh, continuous uh, occupation. <clears throat> now, if you take a look at map number 157, you can see the other two cities that are mentioned there, Hamath and Arpad. So you go from Damascus, which is the capital, to the north, uh, Hamath and Arpad, and there a uh, map, uh, 157, from the Carta Bible Atlas, as all these maps are from the Carta Bible Atlas, and uh, you can actually see a summary of the campaign of uh, Nebuchadnezzar and Nabopolassar and Nico and so on um, in the uh, rise, the destruction of Assyria and the rise of Babylon. Verse 27 contains the name Ben-Hadad. Who's Ben-Hadad? Here it looks as if it's a place, towers of Ben-Hadad. It's actually a personification. It's using the name for a person, or the person gives the name to the towers. Who's Ben-Hadad? Yes, he was a Syrian king. Now, it's actually a dynastic name. It's the same as Hazael, which I put in parenthesis there. There are a number of kings of Syria named Ben-Hadad who appear in the Old Testament, particularly First and Second Kings. And sometimes there's a Hazael who's a king of Syria or a king in Damascus. It's the same thing. It's a dynastic name. So there would be a Ben-Hadad the first, a Ben-Hadad the second, and so on. And it's sometimes difficult to determine from the biblical material which particular Ben-Hadad there was. We do know something about some of them because of archaeological discoveries, but we don't know everything about all of them. Nonetheless, uh, this is a, ref- a reference to the royal house name, the title of the royal house of the Syrian monarchy. And Amos chapter 1-4 is parallel uh, to this passage. So 
Uh, Jeremiah is also familiar uh, with the prophet Amos. All right, now we come to Kedar and Hatzor in verse 28. And if you take uh, map four from the Carta Bible Atlas, you can see the location of Kedar. It's in the North Arabian Desert. Uh, this is a tribal uh, nation. It's a uh, actually nomadic tribal nation. Uh, you may recall the uh, female character, the Shulamite in the Song of Solomon in chapter 1, verse 5. She says she's black like the tents of Kedar. Now, Hatzor is listed in verse uh, 30, this is not the Hazor, which is a city in the northern kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament. So this is not Cisjordanian Hazor. This is actually a tribal region, again, like Kedar, but no one knows where it was located. It's probably associated with Kedar and uh, contiguous or nearby to it, but it doesn't have any kind of particular distinction that we can determine either from the Old Testament or from any other uh, extra-biblical texts. However, we do have a reference to what may being what being being what may be being described here, uh, namely uh, Nebuchadnezzar or Babylon's attack upon Kedar. Uh, here's a quotation from the Chronicles of the Chaldean Kings, which is excavated, dug up in the 19th century, translated in the 20th century by D.J. Wiseman. In the sixth year, the king of Akkad mustered his army and marched to the Hatti land. All right, now who's the king of Akkad? Loretta, who's the king of Akkad? What king of Akkad have we been talking a lot about with respect to the book of Jeremiah? If you're thinking of the book of Jeremiah, what king are you talking about? Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar yes. So Akkad, Akkadian, which is a language, uh, also the Assyrian language, it's a way of referring to the kingdoms of the Mesopotamian uh, crescent. So the king of Akkad is the king of Babylon. Uh, this is Nebuchadnezzar in his sixth year. What would his sixth year be? Loretta, you're doing so well, I'll let you continue. What was his first year? 605. What's his sixth year? Yes, we go down. Subtract six. <laughs> 599. Okay. Subtract five from 605 and you're 600. Subtract one more and you're 599. Okay. All right. So, uh, 599 is the date of this event that's described on your handout. He marches to Hathi land. Where's Hathi land? Okay, where's Hathi land? Ben? Judah. Yeah, Judah and? Yeah. And? You're, you're doing well. <laughs> it's broader. See, this is a Babylonian term, okay? So it's broader than just Judah, Israel. Includes also what else? Mm, not so much. North, Syria. Syria, yes, Syria and Palestine, all right? That's what the Babylonians called Hathi land, okay? So he's marching in Hathi land, and from Hathi land then, he sends his company scouring the desert and takes plunder from the 
From the Arabs, yes. Oh, so where are the Arabs? Well, you see that whole region there, which could also include Kedar, and plunders their possessions, their animals, and their gods. Now, this is, Bab- this is Nebuchadnezzar's own record. This is his record of this campaign. Dated to 599. So that means that Jeremiah, before 599, is predicting that this is going to happen. And Kedar and Hatzor are involved in this uh, judgment, this decimation that falls upon them. Which brings us to to verse 34 and to our break. So we'll resume with Elam after the break. If you have any questions, uh, raise them. Before you get up, though, uh, take any questions if you have any before you break. All right. Um, Mary Lou Conrad died this morning. Uh, she had been taken off life support. I think it was on Sunday, Art, is that correct? Or it was over the weekend that she was taken off life support. The surgery uh, did not uh, relieve uh, uh, pressure or at least did not uh, bring back any consciousness. She had been put into a, a drug-induced coma to, after the surgery. Uh, so uh, Mary Lou has uh, gone to her everlasting rest. And uh, please remember, Terry... Um, because this will be difficult adjustment for him. Um, they, of course, were very close, and we will miss her. Uh, <clears throat> now, another uh, thing for you to think about, we'll talk a little bit more about this next week. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, we'll finish Jeremiah next week, <coughs> with one more chapter after this. And uh, if you are of a mind, we will resume uh, in September, but it really is up to you if you are interested in continuing this type of thing. I'm happy that you're interested to date in continuing because it continues to push me into the Word of God, which I'm happy to do. And if so, if you wish to return in September, I am going to suggest that we look at the Epistle of Jude in the New Testament. So uh, you think about that, and we'll we'll, we'll kind of have a straw vote uh, next week uh, to to see where you what you're thinking about if, if, if you have a mind that you've had enough of this and so on and uh, and you'd rather have your Thursday nights off that's fine that's up to you but if you're uh, interested in, in continuing then uh, we'll take another book of the Bible uh, this time we'll turn our attention to a New Testament epistle have at the eats looks like there's a pile of popcorn back there Now, we're still on chapter 39 and verse 34, where we reached the judgments of God against the nation of Elam, with the Elamites. And if you take map number four from the Cardiff Bible Atlas, you'll notice that Elam is in modern day what? You find it there on that map? I'm thinking it might be Iran. Yes, it is modern-day Iran. And points east, including media on that map, are also in Iran. And what other ancient country is in modern-day Iran? Or was in what is modern-day Iran? Persia. Persia, very good, which is further east of Elam. And not shown on the map. All right, so you know where the Elamites uh, lived. And verse 34 actually dates 
this prophecy. It says it was at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah. And what date would that be? When did Zedekiah begin to reign? My Bible says 579. 597. 597. Yeah. 597. All the times. <laughs> All right. So 597. Zedekiah comes to the throne after Jehoiakim uh, is deported, uh, ruling only three months in Jerusalem. So this oracle is delivered uh, in 597. And Jeremiah is the only Old Testament prophet to have an oracle against Elam. That is a section like this pericope from 34 to 39, which deals in a number of verses with God's judgment against Elam. There are mentions of the Elamites uh, amongst other nations that God is going to judge. But here, Jeremiah has an oracle against Elam which raises the fascinating question, why? Or maybe you don't ask yourself questions like that when you read the Bible, but I do, because you want to know, uh, well, if he does and nobody else does, and nobody else does, then why does he do it? And the answer is? It doesn't tell you. (laughs) Yeah, so you have to think about that, don't you? Obviously, there's a reason that Jeremiah does this. So what's perhaps the most obvious reason? Well, the Elamites are going to have a major hand in the conquest of Babylon. So because they are associated with the collapse of the Babylonian Empire, Jeremiah, who is, of course, going to focus in the next two chapters, 50 and 51, on Babylon, is kind of introducing his oracle against Babylon by by introducing an oracle against a nation which is going to affect Babylon, namely the Elamites. And you'll notice that uh, he's going to break the bow of Elam. Now, why does he mention break the bow? Why does he say he's going to break the swords or break the javelin? Or break the rampart siege engines or whatever. Why is he going to break the bow? That was their specialty. It was their specialty, and you'll see it in Isaiah 22. You don't need to look it up right now, but that's the reason I gave you Isaiah 22.6. The Elamites were famous archers, uh, somewhat like the Scythians, who from the southern steppes of Russia, uh, the Scythians who could shoot, ride bareback and shoot uh, about 300 yards uh, and hit the center of the bullseye. They were remarkable uh, archer and bowmen. Uh, so too the Elamites, <clears throat> quite gifted uh, and skilled in the use of the bow. So this is particularly appropriate to uh, their uh, their major weapon, <clears throat> uh, <clears throat> namely God is going to break their bows. And uh, this occurred uh, subsequent to the destruction of Babylon <clears throat> and to uh, Elam's disappearance not only into the Persian Empire but also Elam's disappearance into the Hellen- <coughs> excuse me the Hellenistic Empire or the Greek Empire of Alexander the Great. All right, now that brings us to chapter fifty and fifty-one, <clears throat> both of which are devoted. 
2, the destruction, the judgment of Babylon, which is called the land of the Chaldeans in the first verse of chapter 50. And we'll notice uh, in a moment uh, where that phrase occurs again. Where were the Chaldeans from? If you take that map number four again, which we just looked at, and you look at Elam that you had your eye upon, you'll notice that the body of water called the Lower Sea, what do we call that today? Lisa, what do we call that Lower Sea today? we got aircraft carriers over there. What do we call that? Straits of Hormuz. Mm, Straits of Hormuz are there in what body of water? Nancy, you did very well. What what body of water is that? Loretta, what body of water is that? You people don't watch the news at all? I, I want to say the Arabian Sea is what I want to say, but I could be... What is it, man? The Persian Gulf. I should know, but I don't know. Persian Gulf. It's the Persian Gulf. Yes, that's the Persian Gulf. <clears throat> the lower sea is the Persian Gulf, which was where, as Nancy said, the Straits of Hormuz are. And we've got aircraft carriers over there as well as a whole bunch of other things <clears throat> uh, because of Iran. All right, now, that little delta region that you see on your map, uh, just below Sumer, that region is the what's called the sea lands, the ancient sea lands of the Tigris-Euphrates Delta. Now, it's called sea lands because it's the lands bordering the sea, this lower sea, which we call the Persian Gulf. And the tribal infiltration into that sea land area was a group of people who called themselves Chaldeans. <clears throat> now, these Chaldeans in the second millennium B.C., eventually made their way up the Tigris-Euphrates Valley into Babylon, which you also see there on your map. So that over a period of years, there was this intermingling of the Chaldeans and the Babylonians. They remembered their kind of ancestral line of descent. It's probable that Nebuchadnezzar was a Chaldean and Nabopolassar, his father, was a Chaldean. But... Because they lived in Babylonia and that was the center of, uh, of their activity, not so much in the Sealand region, even though they didn't disappear from that, <clears throat> then the two names became interchangeable, Chaldean and Babylonian. So Chaldean is a synonym for Babylonia. <clears throat> and so the land of the Chaldeans is another name for Babylonian, which includes not only that Sealand area down near the mouth of the Persian Gulf, but also the up, upstream region of uh, Babylon, where the city of Babylon was located on the Euphrates River. All right, so uh, <clears throat> it's, it's not a mistake in the Bible to call the Babylonians Chaldeans because the terms over a period of time, even in Babylonian and Chaldean history, became interchangeable. Now, is that true with verse 2? Do you see any parallelism in verse 2 that suggests interchangeability of something there? Now, I look at that line that begins, Bell has been put to shame, in the New American Standard at any rate. 
And the next line, Marduk has been shattered. Two lines right next to each other. Does that suggest symmetry? Does that suggest parallelism? Bell shamed Marduk shattered. Yes, okay, so here we have a case of poetic symmetry, poetic parallelism. Now, it's two short stanzas, but nonetheless, it's uh, the same kind of thing we see in the book of Psalms, where we take a look at uh, parallel lines, and we can understand one line, which may be a little more obscure, by the clearer line, which follows it. Here, we have another instance of two distinct entities, namely two distinct gods, who become symmetrically parallel, become interchangeable. Bel originally was the storm god of the Babylonian pantheon. Marduk was originally the chief god of the pantheon, or the chief of all the gods. Over a period of time, throughout a period of years, in both Assyria and in Babylon, Bel and Marduk became interchangeable. They became united. In other words, to say Bel was to say Marduk, to say Marduk was to say Bel. This is the national god of the Babylonian Empire, Bel or Marduk, depending upon the term which one wished to use in referring to it. Now, in verse 3, Jeremiah says, A nation is going to come up against her out of the north. A nation is going to come up against whom? Who are we talking about in this chapter? Chaldeans. Babylon and the Chaldeans. Very good. All right, so who's the nation that's going to come up out of the north? Is that Assyria? No. No, Assyria is long gone, isn't it? Because Babylon conquered Assyria, right? Mississippi, Pardon? Elam. Elam's going to be involved in it. Who's going to conquer Babylon? Persia. Persia. All right, now. It looks a little strange to say out of the north, and yet the invasion is actually going to come from all directions, and the north is going to be involved in it, because if you look at your map number four, you'll notice that the Medes are also going to come down on Babylon with the Persians, so that the Persian Empire is sometimes called the Medo-Persian Empire, because the Medes and the Persians and the Elamites united against the Babylonians, and they came from all directions. All right, so this is a reference to the conquest of Babylon by the Persians in what year? The date? 583? No. I mean, uh, 539. 539, very good. 539, and who is the leader of this invasion? Who is the king of Persia? Cyrus. Cyrus the Great. Yes. Cyrus the Great rules from 539 to 530 B.C., He's actually an old man when he conquers Babylon. He's had a number of campaigns, particularly campaigns against the Medes, <clears throat> earlier on in the or earlier in the 550s BC. But in 539, uh, he conquers Babylon and Belshazzar's feast, and Belshazzar is killed on that night. And in fact, it's a fairly bloodless uh, occupation. There wasn't a great deal of death and mayhem when the Persians invaded uh, Babylon. They took it over in a somewhat peaceful uh, 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 overthrow. I will comment uh, a little bit later on uh, some of those details. Uh, Verse 17 of chapter uh, 39 
Israel scattered like a flock. The first one who devoured him was the king of Assyria. The last one who has broken his bones is Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. We can date those events. <clears throat> the king of Assyria. What's the date of his <clears throat> devouring the flock of Israel? Anyone? 722. And what's the date of Nebuchadnezzar breaking the bones of Israel? Anyone? 586. All right, so here we have a uh, prediction that is probably prior to the destruction of uh, the southern kingdom. But the king of Israel, the king of Assyria has already destroyed the northern kingdom. So we're once again referring to God's judgment as it has fallen in history, even upon his own people. Now, in verse 21, we have the, the term Maratayim, and in the second line, Pekod or Pukudu. Now, this Maratayim, literally translated, means a, a double rebellion. In fact, uh, this term is a, a cipher which is called an atbash. And you'll see another one of them in verse 1 of chapter 51. Uh, I'll explain that when we get to 51, uh, but this uh, term picod, which occurs here, is a region uh, probably in southeastern Babylonia, and it is mentioned by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 23, verse 23. Now, verse 29 <clears throat> underscores the Lex Talionis. Now, we've <clears throat> talked about the Lex Talionis before, uh, <clears throat> not necessarily in uh, our studies in Jeremiah, but in other studies. Uh, what does that Latin phrase mean? Anyone? What's lex mean? Law. Law. Okay. Talionis. Yes, has to do with an eye with an eye for an eye. What's talionis mean? It's the law of the talon. Okay. Okay. And refers to the law of retaliation. Okay. Which, as Ben pointed out, is the eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Now here in this verse, uh, chapter 50, verse uh, 29, I'm going to repay her according to her work as she has done, so it will be done to her. In other words, she is going to reap what she sowed. That's the law of retaliation. God's justice is going to execute uh, a, a fair measure of what she dished out is going to be dished out to her in turn. And in fact, this is something that God continues to do in the march of history. Uh, <clears throat> nations dish out injustice and violence and war, etc., and God turns it on them. He swallows them up in their own uh, fury. All right, so here he's pledging to do to Babylon what she had done to others, including Judah and Jerusalem. And he does so with a particularly staccato-like uh, series of verses from 35 to 37, where he uses a light verter repeatedly over and over and over again. And what does that German word light verter mean? And we won't ask our German expert. Uh, 
because she doesn't want to be asked, so I'll leave her alone. What what does light verter mean? Anyone? It's a word that leads on. <laughs> it's a word that leads on, all right? We've defined it as what? Keyword. Keyword, as a keyword, right? So a word that occurs as a key to a section. And what is the word here, which is the light verter in this section? The word sword. It's repeated over and over again. So this is another type of thing to look for in Hebrew literature and also in Greek literature. We want to try to find what theme is being developed or advanced. And if we find a term which is repeated frequently, then we have a key word which we want to focus on. And that, of course, what Jeremiah is focusing on, the sword that is going to be used against Babylon and the Chaldeans. Notice there in verse 35, the parallelism between Chaldean and Babylon. So it's indication indicating a symmetry uh, between the two names. Now, one interesting uh, note at the end of this chapter, verses 44 to 46, are actually a repetition of uh, verses 19 to 21 of chapter 49. In other words, a judgment which was issued against uh, Edom is replayed here in uh, the judgment against Babylon. Is that a suggestion that as Babylon had judged Edom, so God is going to use the same kind of imagery in judgment against Babylon? I think it's likely something on that order with respect to the reason Jeremiah reuses the very same uh, phrases in parallel. All right, now that brings us to chapter 51 and what's called the Atbash of Lev Kami or Lev Kamai in the Hebrew text. Uh, You're probably scratching your head as to what an Atbash is. And actually, this is something I've learned this week myself. I've never known before what it is. Uh, it is a cipher. Now, here, uh, I'll give you an illustration in English of what it is, and then I'll talk about the Hebrew for a moment. It's a way of reversing an alphabet in order to use a secret code. For instance, if we reversed the English alphabet, we would use the letter Z to mean the letter A, and the letter Y to mean the letter B. So you could set up a code using this pattern, and there then you would decipher a message on the basis of this reverse English letter alphabet. <clears throat> now, with respect to these terms here in the Hebrew text, Lev Kamai, this is a reversal of the Hebrew alphabet, The last letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Tau, and it becomes equivalent to the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, which is Aleph. And the next to the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet is Shin, and it becomes equivalent to the second letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Beis. All right, so what you do is you line up the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, and then you look at how they're using them here to make up this word. So this is a cipher. This is kind of like a code word for Babylon, Lev Kami, and that's how it's derived. Now, this Atbash style, of course, is a simplistic way of passing on secret coded messages and has been used in international espionage, etc., for years. So consequently, those who are 
skilled in deciphering secret codes will often begin with an Aunt Bosch pattern. And they'll start to look and see, okay, are they using letters in reverse order? So then I'll get the message if I translate it by using the reverse style of the alphabet. All right, now in verse 11, we have a mention of the Medes who are going to be aroused against the Babylonians. And you'll notice again in verse uh, map number four, you have, as I think we already pointed out, the location of the Medes in the mountainous regions uh, east of the Tigris-Euphrates Valley and east of the ancient uh, kingdom of Assyria. Verse 13, O you who dwell by many waters, abundant in treasures, your end has come. Now, this is a reference to Babylon, but notice how she's described here. She's described as dwelling by many waters and of having abundant treasures. Now, if you'll take the last handout, which is in your packet, you have a schematic or a kind of diagram of the archaeology of ancient Babylon, what has been uncovered uh, since the 19th century about the city of Nebuchadnezzar, which he built in Babylon. And you'll notice that one of the boundaries or uh, one, one, something that goes right through the city is the Euphrates River. Uh, you'll notice it between the two sections on the right and left-hand side of the city, labeled Euphrates. So the waters, the many waters, which were around Babylon, refer to the Euphrates River, which actually flowed through part of the city, if not uh, a good bit of it. Now, the many treasures that are referred to in that verse refer to many of the the buildings that were inside the city, including temples and palaces, etc. The famous Ishtar Gate, a replica which is in the Chicago Museum. Uh, These are uh, famous uh, ancient uh, uh, displays and are pictured as uh, some of the uh, emphasis upon the opulence and wealth of these ancient kingdoms. But here you can see the extent of the city of Babylon, at least insofar as it's been uncovered to date. And prior uh, to the Iraqi war, uh, Saddam Hussein was attempting to rebuild Babylon and to put it back together. And when the war came, they abandoned that. Uh, There's some uh, uh, indication that the current administration in Baghdad is also attempting to finish uh, the work that was begun there and not to just uh, let it uh, fall away to dust again and to make it a tourist attraction. Well, in any event, um, you can see um, uh, the extent of the city. It's huge. And it had, uh, in addition to the famous hanging gardens, which have not been identified as far as location, though they know they were there, uh, you see some temples and palaces and other things uh, that have been uncovered and uh, reflecting the uh, tremendous wealth of the city of Babylon. Now we come to another light verter in verse 20, which extends all the way through verse uh, 24. It is the word shatter or hammer, or repay, and uh, this uh, destruction of uh, Babylon 
although I mentioned that Persia didn't bring a lot of bloody mayhem upon Babylon when they conquered it in 539. Nonetheless, the city eventually became a desolate wilderness, and that happened during the era of the Seleucids, uh, after the collapse of the kingdom of Alexander the Great. Now, verse 27 uh, lists a number of locations, and we'll go back to that map number four once again, and we'll take a look at Ararat, Mini or Manai, and Ashkenaz. Now, you can see Ararat in the top center of that map number four, and Ararat is modern-day Armenia. Sometimes people say that I don't want to be an Armenian, and they're talking about uh, they want to be Calvinists. Well, this is not Armenians, it's Armenians, not with an E, but with an I for the theological error. The Armenians are very ancient uh, people, <clears throat> go way back into ancient history, and consequently Ararat, where Noah's Ark landed, at least on a mountain in the mountain ranges there, as it's usually understood, <clears throat> Uh, that is uh, the modern nation of Armenia in eastern Turkey. Now, the Mini or the Manai were a tribe near the lake, which is underneath the A in Ararat. Now, that lake, which is a dark splotch on your map, is not labeled. That is Lake Van, spelled V-A-N, pronounced Van. And that's when where the Mani... Uh, lived. <clears throat> they were actually involved in the destruction of Assyria as well as the conquest of Babylon. And the Ashkenaz are associated with them <clears throat> in this verse and in other references, though we don't know exactly where their tribal territory was. Nonetheless, we think it is in this very same region. Ararat in the third millennium BC was the region of the Urartu, and that is uh, interesting uh, uh, for <clears throat> incursions uh, into the Mesopotamian crescent of these nomadic uh, barbarians that came from the mountains of Ararat <clears throat> and uh, called in, uh, Neo, in, in old Babylonian uh, literature the Urartu. Verse 41. <clears throat> has another Atbash, this time it's Sheshak, and once again, this is an Atbash for the kingdom of Babylon. <clears throat> now, in verse 44, <clears throat> the Lord mentions the walls of Babylon fallen down. If you return to that schematic I gave you of Babylon uh, as it's been uncovered by archaeology, uh, you'll notice the walls <clears throat> that surround the new town and the Suana, <clears throat> etc. <cetera. clears throat> You'll notice how they're drawn uh, on that uh, schematic. You'll notice that there's an outer wall, and it's labeled a moat wall, and then there's an inner wall. <clears throat> All right, now, <clears throat> that outer wall, which is labeled the moat wall, is 12 feet thick. Then there's a gap, which is where the moat was, between that outer wall and the inner wall of 23 feet filled with water. And then there was the inner wall, which is that kind of dotted line, which you see on the inside, which was 21 feet thick. All right, now, you've got 
an inner wall 21 feet thick. What did Nebuchadnezzar do on that thick inner wall? He drove his guardsmen in chariots around the wall. He could drive a chariot four horses abreast down that wall and turn them around and bring them back. This is huge. This is huge, 21 feet wide. And then another 23 feet filled with water like a moat, and then 12 more feet outside that. And Cyrus just walked in. Didn't have to punch a hole through the wall. Well, in any event, we have verified the fact that the walls of Babylon were formidable, uh, extremely thick and well-built. Verse 46. Let your heart not grow faint. Violence will be in the land with ruler against ruler. This is probably an allusion to the assassinations of the subsequent Babylonian kings. When Nebuchadnezzar died in 562, he was succeeded by his son, a fellow named Amal Marduk. We'll talk a little bit more about him next week when we look at chapter 52. Now, Amal Marduk only lived to reign two years because he was assassinated by his brother-in-law. Who's his brother-in-law? His brother-in-law is the next guy on the list, Neroglisser. So, having been assassinated by, uh, having assassinated his predecessor, Neroglisser dies in 556. Not assassinated, don't know exactly how he came to his end, but he is succeeded by his son, Labashi Marduk, who is also murdered. He's murdered in a conspiracy led by Nabonidus, and we've talked about already, who is the last formal king of the Babylonian Empire, though he has a second-in-command king named Belshazzar in Babylon. Here is uh, God's prediction of the fact he's going to set ruler against ruler in this descending chain of Babylonian kings, uh, none of whom was as powerful as or as mighty as Nebuchadnezzar himself. Now we close out the chapter with verse 59 through 64 which changes the narrative somewhat when Jeremiah conveys a message to Sariah, son of Neriah. Now, son of Neriah should remind you that Sariah has a brother, Ben-Neriah, son of Neriah. And who is his brother? Okay, keep your finger there. Turn back to chapter 45 and look at verse 1. Baruch. Yes, Sariah is the brother of Baruch. And what is Sariah told to do? What's Jeremiah telling him to do here in chapter 51? I want you to read a scroll. I'm going to give you words on a scroll, and I want you to read it. Deja vu? Like brother, like brother? Why did you laugh, Art? Yes, we've come across that before. Who read a scroll? 
Yes, of course it was Baruch, okay? So, like brother, like brother. You know, Saraya reads a scroll in Babylon. Baruch reads a scroll in Jerusalem. Chapter 36, <laughs> Baruch reads a scroll, and what happens to the scroll he reads? Ben? It's, uh, the one by Baruch is uh, cut by a pen knife by the Wiccan. And? Burned. And burned up. And, and so <clears throat> Jeremiah repeats it. So <clears throat> here we've got two brothers receiving the word of God, putting it down on scrolls, reading it. In one case, it's destroyed by fire. In the other case, this one's destroyed by water. water. Yeah, see, they're both lost. Now, in this case, it's cast into the Euphrates River. And you'll notice that that makes sense because he was to read it in Babylon. And what river would be flowing right through Babylon? You just saw it on your little schematic, the Euphrates River. So all he'd have to do is stand up on the wall and throw it over. Well, he probably didn't stand up on the wall. He'd probably down on the level of the, of the river. But nonetheless, you see how it fits what we know about the geography of Babylon from the schematic that the archaeology, uh, archaeological discovery has uncovered. All right, so interesting pattern here, isn't it? That after the conclusion of the career of Jeremiah in Egypt, we have that little incident in chapter 45 with Baruch. And here at the end of Jeremiah's prophetic oracles against the nations, we have a little round off with Baruch's brother. Oh, they're out of place. Editor didn't know what he was doing. Oh, come on, give me a break. You've got to be smarter than that. Come on, you're so stupid you don't see what's happening here in terms of these little closures that the prophet has placed into his inspired work. So that we're reminded, you see, of the finality of the word of God in both instances, aren't we? Baruch in chapter 45, the finality of the word of God, and Sarah in chapter 51, the finality of the word of God. Before we come to chapter 52, which is not Jeremiah's words. In fact, the last words in chapter 51 are, thus far, are the words of Jeremiah. So we've come to the end of Jeremiah's words. And if you'll notice at the end of your third page in your handout, I've given you the macro structure for the first 51 chapters of the entire book of Jeremiah. In our first meeting many, many months ago, we projected this forward and we actually outlined it there. Here I want to remind you of that outline because we have a large frame inclusio around the whole book of Jeremiah. In chapter 1, verse 1, the words, the words of Jeremiah. In chapter 51, verse 64b, the last words of this section, the words of Jeremiah. The words of Jeremiah bracket his prophetic narrative biography, which include the words of God. Now, there's also a little uh, macrostructure with respect to the units or the pericopes in chapters 49 to 51, and you'll notice that each of them, with the exception of one group, is bracketed, it's framed. There's a framing pattern at the beginning and ending of each of those oracles. The oracles against Ammon, open with the sons of Ammon, close with the sons of Ammon. 
Edom begins with Edom, closes with Edom. Damascus begins with Damascus, closes with Damascus. The first verse in the Elam oracle contains that name. The last verse in the Elam oracle contains that name. Then in chapter 50, verse 1, the chapter opens with Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans. And in verse 45, it ends with Babylon, the land of the Chaldeans. And finally, in chapter 51, the chapter ends with uh, Babylon in verse 1 and 58, with the Sarea incident being outside of that pyramid. So we have these very neatly framed and constructed, patterned oracular paradigms. The only exception is Kedar and Hatzor, which has no framing pattern uh, within it, which is the reason we skip uh, there between uh, verse 27 and 34. Any questions that you may have this evening? Next week, we will finish Jeremiah, chapter 52, which will be a little bit of an instant replay, deja vu, but we will look at the differences or what makes chapter 52 unique, and we'll ask the question why it's there. You already know that I don't believe Jeremiah wrote it. Why is it there? If he didn't write it, how did it get into his book? Ah, okay.